0: Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Toxic at GS was recorded before a live audience.
1: I'm thrilled um, to be here with my good friend Bob Pittman. And so the first thing I have to say, and we'll we'll touch on this a little bit later, is Bob has a great podcast that he does called Math and Magic, and I was recently on the podcast, and he got to interview me. And so I'm now, I'm excited to have tables tables turned. turned. Tables are turned. But we'll start as you did. I want to start at the beginning, and I want to go back to when you really started in radio at the age of 15 in Mississippi, and tell me a little bit about, you know, your childhood, how you started, and how you made your way to be a successful programmer in the radio business at a relatively young age.
0: Well, in the late 60s, early 70s, there was no satellite. There was no Internet. So small town radio stations hired high school kids to be on the radio. And it's stunning the number of people in the media business of my age and a little older who got their start as a teenage disc jockey somewhere. And, uh, and I was no exception. I, I, I wanted to fly airplanes. And my, uh, my parents said, well, you better get a job. And I tried getting a job at a men's clothing store and they said I was too young. I tried to get a job at the high-paying job in town, which was bagging groceries at the Piggly Wiggly. Uh, they had none. And I walked in a radio station and said, you know, I, you know, could be on the radio? You got any jobs? And the guy said, Do you have good grace? I have good enough. He said, you're you in trouble? I'm not really. And he goes, okay, read this, turned on a real-to-real Real tape recorder, said, read this news copy off the teletype machine. He listened to it and said, okay, that's good enough. Go get your third class t- radio telephone uh, operator's license in New Orleans, which is allows you to run the transmitter. And I was hired. And suddenly I was a minimum wage, $1.65 an hour disc jockey. Uh, I got to be on the radio, be a star, and then sweep out the garbage. Uh, but it, it, it gave me an, an early uh, uh, you know, love for it. And, I, and initially I just wanted to get money to pay for flying lessons. But I got totally into it and uh, got intrigued with the the art of programming, and, uh, and sort of led to a, an interesting career. By the time I was uh, 18, I was in this. disc jockey. I'd been in Milwaukee, Detroit. At age 19, I convinced some folks to let me program a radio station in Pittsburgh. Why on earth did they let a 19-year-old kid program the radio station? I have no idea. But I had a big success, and NBC hired me in Chicago to program their station when I was 20. And then at 23, they sent me to New York to program WNBC. Which
1: is amazing. And, I, mean, and, w, I mean, I remember what WNBC was. WNBC. BC. yeah.
0: And, uh, and Herb Schlosser, was the president of NBC, took a liking to me and uh, said, you know what, kid, you're going to TV. I want you to get some TV experience. So I did a show that ran after Saturday Night Live called Album Tracks. I hosted it and produced it. Interestingly, my co-host... <laughs> what was, year was that? It was 1978. Wow. And my co-host was Jarl Mohn, who just retired as the chairman and, uh, or the CEO of NPR. And I've always threatened Jarl, I said, I'm going to show him the pictures of us on that show and <laughs> i will ruin your career. Uh, but that was how I got, got started. And, I, and what helped me was I was young, programming for young people, so I intuitively knew <coughs> some things, but really no one had used research and programming. And I went to college everywhere I worked. And I was a major social major and I was doing social methods a lot in research and said, you know, you can apply these techniques to radio. We could actually find out what songs they want instead of guessing at it and began to do a lot of survey research and one of the first (coughs) folks to do that in radio. So my podcast is math and magic. So I always think you need to be a bit of a showman but you really need to ground it in real facts. And, And that sort of was my career was I got started very early on the, at that time we called it the research side uh, today we'd we'll be talking data, and, and there's
1: nothing. I mean, there was there was nothing going on in that context. People and people pe- picked a handful of songs that they wanted to tout on the radio. They get played over and over again, but there was no. They they thought they had a golden gut. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh boy, David has the golden gut. He can hear a hit. <laughs> and I go, you know, I'd rather actually survey a hundred people and ask them and find out what the hits really are. And uh, and I learned a lot about marketing too when I came to New York against WABC Radio. Um, I surveyed the music, and then I started doing some some. Surveys about uh, uh, marketing slogans, and I would ask people "Why do you like WABC, which was number one in New York at the time?" And they go, "Because they play the best music." And what the, uh, WABC did is, every time they opened the mic, they said, "WABC plus the, plays the best music." The jingles were WABC See, plays the best absolutely. music, and so um, <laughs> that's what jingles and It was, and by the way, when I researched the music, they weren't playing the best music, but they had so convinced the audience they had. So I learned it's not just the sum of the product it's also how you market it and what you say about it and there's a one of my favorite books is uh is incognito the secret lives of the brain and you know it's sort of the brain science book but one of the one of the things in there that comes out is that actually your subconscious sort of the thesis of the book your subconscious is running your your life and that if you say something enough the subconscious will regurgitate it to your conscious self and say, oh yeah, WABC plays the best music, only because it's heard it a million times, a million times yeah. and, but it's not based on checking it against fact, and it's uh, sort of like The Undoing Project, if you've read that too, mm-hmm. which you know, the beginnings of behavioral economics, where you really begin to understand that it's not a logical, irrational uh, decision, there are other things that influence it. So I got, I got to see that stuff very yeah, early, yeah. so by the time I got to MTV, I already had a few tricks. So
1: let's we, 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 have to, we have to talk about MTV and the creation of MTV and the idea for MTV. Uh, obviously, at the time, you know, the concept of, of MTV by technology changing to some degree, but tell us how it happened and where did the idea come from? And, you know, I remember very well because I was, I was in college when MTV, I mean, I remember this vividly when, when MTV, you know, was first launched and all we wanted to do was turned to and watch MTV, and it was completely changing the way we thought about music or the way we heard music. Um, and so talk about kind of the brainchild and, and how it got started, and then we can get into a little bit just how quickly it grew.
0: Sure, I, you know, I think the, um, there's several facets to the story, so I'm gonna pick a couple of them. One is that the TV was about three channels, and if you were in a big city, maybe six channels and uh so this was this i revolutionary idea that you were going to be have all these channels of tv 15 and uh or maybe 30. uh and from that you'd be able to pick and choose the program you wanted to watch when you wanted to watch it like 24-hour news service so you could pick a little news here or a little news here aka cable television cable tv so it was and remember home video had not yet been invented sure so you couldn't get a pre-recorded anything it was the tv or nothing, or the movie theater. And so the idea was, and there was a company formed by Warner and American Express called Warner amex Satellite Entertainment Corporation. And it was designed to build networks for this brave new world of specialized networks. And they actually recruited me because I came out of radio. And they thought that the networks were going to be specialized as opposed to general interest, like the three broadcast networks. And uh, so I got hired to do it. And originally the first service was the movie channel, which is actually still around today, which the was the first 24 yeah. hour movie service. It was the first all movie service. What year was that? That was channel? 1979 mm-hmm. when I came over. And, uh, and then we did well enough that they said, we're ready to do another one. Let's try a basic cable network, which by the way people thought subscription would work like HBO or the movie channel, but there's no way you could ever make money on advertising from a, these little reach networks. And uh, so we, I, I, I got, you know, sort of pitched the idea. I'd done something called album tracks, as I mentioned, after Saturday Night Live, which was playing around with video clips. I had a boss who just loved the idea of music and just dying to do a music service. Uh, and so we pitched it to the Warner Amex board and they said, too risky, we're not gonna make the decision. Mm-hmm. So I got a meeting with Jim Robinson, who was running American Express at the time. His lieutenant was Lou Gershner, who was the president, and uh, Steve Ross who ran Warner Communications, and we did the big pitch. And at the end of it, I expected Steve from the Warner side to say, yes, we'll do it. Because right. by the way, I was very worried that when I showed these videos, the American Express people oh, we don't want to be involved with that. So I'd like Olivia Newton-John and <laughs> people like that. And uh, true to form somewhere in the meeting, they go, what, do we have to play that kind of stuff? And I go, well, yeah, well, that's terrible stuff, that Olivia Newton-John. Um, and uh, But at the end, Jim Robinson was the one who said, you know, we asked for $20 million to launch it and get the break even. And uh, Jim said, I'm in for my 10, how about you, Steve? And that was it. And And, and Steve, and Jim's been a good friend over the years, and he said, you know, I just thought you were a really successful radio programmer, and it sounded like uh, you had the skills, so I was willing to risk money on it. And uh, so that's the way it began, And, and it was rocky. The first few years, the board wanted to shut us down a few times. Uh, thankfully, Steve Ross sort of kept them from doing that. Shut,
1: shut you down because it wasn't it wasn't scaling quick enough? Well, that, shut yeah, you down because,
0: because it, it was putting
1: something on the television? N- nothing goes like see. this. Of course. And
0: uh, I think that one um, one board member called us a sieve um, because uh. I think we lost $30 million <laughs> instead of $20 million by the time we got to break even. But what's curious, at the end of five years, we had actually earned more money cumulatively. In that five years than we had originally projected. It just, you know, originally it exploded. I was originally the programmer and uh, we had projections. So we were going to do $10 million in revenue first year because we had a bunch of people from the networks who were our salespeople and they'd gone around and talked to the agents. They said, Yeah, yeah, we'll be there. Well, as soon as you show up, they go, Well, I'll be there when you get a rating. <laughs> Wait a minute, to said, We had $500,000 of revenue first year. And so it was mad scramble time. Within a year, I was running the thing because they thought, Wow, this thing's falling apart. That, but but people do like the product, so let's give this kid a chance to run it. I was 27, and so uh, I took over running it, and uh, we sort of, we were never going to get ad revenue from the agencies, so we started doing these incredible contests, the one-night stand with, the, with Mac, or the lost weekend with Van Halen, yeah. or the John Mellencamp, where we gave away a house, and he came and painted the house pink with you, and it just created a great buzz, and all, sponsors wanted to get in that and say, well... How much is that? I say half a million dollars. Oh, great, I man! Go, uh, you got to spend a million dollars in media to get it. <laughs> they go, like, okay, call, tell the agency to spend a million dollars, and that's the way we got it. And we actually had the—we were the first basic cable network to make money. Thought that couldn't happen. Just forget whatever content. Just couldn't happen. And uh, and we were the most profitable basic cable network for my time there. Uh, and we sort of developed this revenue stream. So when people talk about, well boy, the. Agencies aren't there. Revenue, I've lived through that one. I lived through AOL when they said, we don't want any digital advertising. Uh, that's not, uh, you know, we don't need to be on the internet. And, uh, and that obviously turned out to be wrong. So it's, you know, you, you get comfort from those ideas. Yeah. But that was the first one I had. So I didn't know that it was ever going to turn around. But we had a sort of a maniacal uh, mission. You know, we were all on this mission from God to go create the first music service.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, it's a great, it's a, it's a great story, and it's, it's, it, it brings me kind of the next question because I want to jump ahead, and I want to talk about iHeart. You don't a little want to bit. talk about
0: old times? For, no, we I mean, can, I can talk about old like times. Old about, to I to jump
1: ahead. I want to talk about iHeart a little bit, but, you know, here's this business that you know is traditional radio business, and, you know, that world is just being disrupted and changing so quickly, and you've really worked to evolve it in a very, very significant way. So, talk a little bit about your vision for the evolution of iHeart and how you really think about that business
0: now versus when you started getting involved in that business. So to me, the key was really taking a step back and saying, wait, what is this we're doing here? And at that time, the bet was that technology would hurt uh, radio. And they saw Pandora and later Spotify, that's going to hurt radio. that's That's not even our business. Those guys are replacing the CD and downloads that's that's the other side of it, which is the music collection. We're in the radio business, and then understanding fundamentally what do we do in radio? Is radio is really about companionship? Um, we are we keep people company. Uh, when you go to the 7-Eleven at uh, you know midnight, the guy the, so he's listening to the radio. radio. He's not yeah. listening to his playlist yeah. he wants a human voice keep him company and we keep people company when they're dressing in the morning when they're cooking breakfast when they're driving in their car as a matter of fact we often coach our talent that you're someone's best friend sitting in that empty seat next to him in the car every morning. what would you be talking to him about how would you be interacting how could you be the most interesting friend so when they got to work they were sad the journey was over as opposed to glad to get you out of the car and, uh, and that makes the successful stations. And when you come to that, you realize, and by the way, 25% of our stations play no music. Right. Some people think, oh, it's about music. We, we happen to play it's about, music. It's about everything. I mean, because it's, great friends play music for each other. Yeah. It's a passion point. But we also sometimes are passion around sports, opinions, et cetera. And uh, so for us, the journey was, okay, if that's who we are and what we are, what do we need to do? Well, from a consumer standpoint, we need to be everywhere the consumer is with the products and services they expect from us. In other words, we need to be on devices other than a radio. So today we're on 250 uh, different platforms, thousands of devices, uh, smart speakers, my phone, my TV. I think we're on some refrigerators, uh, (laughs) video game machines everywhere. That I need my friend but if we're not there you'll lose your friendship just like if you got a great friend you don't see them for a year or so they sort of fade from you a little bit so we got to be there then the second side was how do you monetize and the idea was well you know we sell spots and i go i don't think advertisers want to buy any spots anymore I think you know starting with AOL work we did but Facebook and Google took it to new levels is they redefined what an advertiser is looking for. The advertiser no longer wants to take the risk and not know much and trust you that these spots are going to sure. work. They want analytics and data. So we set about building out the analytics and the data capabilities so we could indeed converse in the same language that they're accustomed to doing. And then finally, we had all these radio stations with different brands sort of hard to talk about that as one product. So we developed a master brand called iHeartRadio. And that became the name of our events, of our app, but also all of our radio stations. Z100, iHeartRadio station. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like Pixar. You know, if you know a film's a Pixar film, an animated film, oh, it's probably be better than I, if it weren't one. And indeed we show about a 20 point lift in quality if people know it's an iHeartRadio station, uh, quality perception. So we put those pieces in place, and then it's a matter of sort of driving it through and having our mind open to new ideas. One of them was podcasting, Mm -hmm. which um, if I look at Netflix, I think Netflix was really an extension of TV. It was TV, actual TV programs on demand, and it was stuff that looked like it ought to belong on TV, but wasn't on TV, but could be, and that was Netflix. Instead of owning that and sort of extending the TV experience, you know, single audience, multiple platforms, the TV industry decided to get a quick buck and license their stuff to this startup called Netflix. Um, and yeah, don't worry with having to build it. I think taking a lesson from that, we said podcasting is the equivalent of that for, for us and radio. And we need to use it as an extension of what we do. It's still companionship, it's the kind of stuff we talk about on the radio. I, I liken it to, if we're in a cocktail party, mm-hmm. and you and I say, hey, God, it's great to catch up, how's your house going, blah, 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 that's radio. If I grab you and say, David, I need to talk to you for about 30 minutes, can you come over here for a minute? And we did some serious, con- that's the podcast. Um, it's a deeper, more intimate uh, relationship, more focused relationship. And so we decided we needed to be there. And we are now the number one commercial podcaster. We at NPR go back and forth as to who's number one overall. But we're about twice as big as number three, and keep how many, widening. How many, how many podcasts? How many podcasts does iHeart have? Well, as we as well have, m- yeah, well, gosh, we have, I don't know how many zillions. Wow. But the, we have more in the top two hundred than anybody else. We do about one hundred and fifty million downloads a month, growing. We do reach million. about oh. a twenty-two million unique audience. By the way, when we last year when we bought How Stuff Works and doubled our size, we were twelve million. Mm. So it's grown that much on top of the base we had. And I think the reason we and NPR are number one, and so far number one, sort of in that stack, is because we're both in radio. Mm-hmm. And we constantly talk about things on the radio podcast, back and forth, and uh, we spend, I added it up, I think it was something between 100 and $200 million a year in free radio advertising we have through our podcast. Every Sunday night, every radio station we own runs a podcast. Every time we break a new podcast, we run it first on the radio, and then we put That's it out a on a podcast, yeah. and we're constantly talking back and forth, and that gives brings this new audience to it uh, that is both good for podcasting and obviously good for us.
1: You know, we've been talking about media a lot, but you've run a bunch of other companies too. You ran a you ran, I can't keep ran, a job. You ran Six Flags. I mean, you you ran Century Twenty One. What when you look at the other when you look at the other companies, what what job or what other company did you really enjoy running, and why? And what experience you know, did you take from those that has helped you with iHeart?
0: You know, it's funny, I, when I went to AOL, people said, oh yeah, that MTV experience must help you a lot. And I said, actually the experience that helps me most is Six Flags, because we dealt with customer service and the biggest issue on AOL and all the services was how do you really serve that serve consumer. Yeah. And uh, I, I found I take a lot from all of them. I learned an awful lot about how to resolve problems, Uh, If I got a problem, how do I deal with it? Because we had to deal with them on the spot at the theme parks. Um, And but every, I I love business. It's like playing consumer-facing businesses. Mm -hmm. It's like playing chess. It's like okay, what's the problem? What's the solution? How do we move it around? And uh, and I've and I wind up using a lot of the tricks again and again. You know, if you tell me, oh man, I got a crisis. Okay, first thing you got to do is acknowledge it. Second thing you got to do is apologize for it. Then you got to empathize with them. Then you got to tell them what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. And if you do that, they'll forgive you. Generally. And I learned that at Six Flags. Yeah. And when we had a connectivity crisis at AOL, guess what we used? Exactly that process. Yeah. And so it's, and then, you know, with, look, when I was Chief Operating Officer of Time Warner, we had all those businesses. There was, because we had so many different businesses and disparate businesses, there was crisis every day. Um, and so you begin to say, okay, I need a, a way to deal with it and and you know sitting in your seat basically anything fun doesn't come to me the things that come to me are the problems that can't be solved yeah. so my day is just filled with problems that no one else can solve and they go here it's yours isn't um, isn't,
1: uh, isn't that the definition of being a ceo oh
0: god it's <laughs> like you know talk about aging yeah. um but it by the way when i stopped working in 2002 I, I had sleeping problems and then I stopped working. I didn't have any sleeping problems. Uh, and I'm back to having sleeping <laughs> problems again. Um, it's hard to, turn the, hard to turn the mind off. It is hard to turn the mind off, but I think yeah. what I find fascinating about business, I'm sure everybody here, because they're doing the same thing, we all do is just, just incredibly stimulating. Yeah. And, uh, and, and the truth is you can learn something from everybody. Um, and I love sort of the case studies that people do in industries. Unrelated to mine because sometimes when it's a different industry, I see the issue much clearer than I do when I'm so involved with it because it's my company or my industry. And so I try and listen a lot, and I'm just wildly curious. and uh, And I think that that helps a lot.
1: Well, I want to I want to expand on that a little bit because, you know, I saw even though I've known you for a long time, I saw a side of you when I sat for math and magic. Um, you know that curiosity uh, and the fact that you do like to listen, you do like to ask, you do like to Learn about different things. I've sat for a lot of podcasts, but I, I enjoyed the experience of sitting with you based on the questions you asked and the way that interaction worked better than than any other podcast I've sat for. Oh, good, Jake I love Seward, it. You heard Jake it here. Seward, Jake yes. Seward does a podcast too at Goldman Sachs. It's awesome, and I enjoy that almost almost as much. Oh, okay, right? I got you. But um, but talk a little bit about, you know, why you decide to do the podcast, and you know. How do, you, how do you pick people for the podcast and what are you, what are you looking to do um, you know, as, you, as you develop these conversations? Because I really walked away from that saying incredibly interesting and thoughtful conversation with you because of your intellectual curiosity.
0: You know what's funny is I think there are a lot of people out there who have great lessons and stories to tell. But sadly, when journalists get them, they feel a need to tear them apart as opposed to try and understand the story. And as a result, I don't think we've got a body of information that helps the business community as it should. So mine is, I said, rather than being a journalist, what I really am doing is I'm throwing a dinner party with some really interesting people, and I'm going to bring a guest they don't know but I know. And I'm going to try and get the stories out of them to talk about it. We're not going to be rude. We're not going to be impolite. I don't have to ask you nosy questions. I just need you to get those stories out and feel comfortable telling them. And so that was the idea. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and, and I would say I probably have a bias toward people I know because I know a lot of their stories. Mm-hmm. And I know, ooh, I, I had Walter Isaacson on last week, and I knew Walter had a story, which I'd never heard told before, that Walter never voted. And he didn't vote because he thought it violated his journalistic principles, because he thought if I just decide which candidate I'm gonna vote for, it puts a bias on me and I'm not going to be able to cover them as fairly. And wow. he had never told that. And I knew he had that a, story. That's a high so, bar. I, yeah. so I wanted to get stories like that out and, uh, and get them out because I think they're instructive to people. Whether you agree or disagree, it helps us all with our mind. And uh, so when I look for it, I'm looking for people who it's really math and magic, analytics and creativity. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with both of those? And, you know, in advertising, real extreme example, everybody says, I want to me- it's measurable. And I go, so you found them all. What are you going to do with them? Yeah. Run a line of text? Are you going to go into showman mode? And I found them. Now I'm going to convince them. Persuasion. And I think you need both. And you need both running a company, building a company. You sure. need both in marketing. And uh, and so that's really the, the goal. But it, I, I think I'll be a success if people listen to them and say, yeah, I learned something from that. Yeah. That's, I, what I'm,
1: that's what I'm finding about podcasts is I listen to podcasts. You hear the stories. And I'm finding there are lots of things to take away from those yeah. stories that can help me, that can help me in my job at Goldman Sachs, that can help me in my life personally. Right. It's a very interesting forum for kind of generating some self-reflection and some thought.
0: And look, I, you know, selfishly, I like talking with people. And so it's, I've always enjoyed it. I'm comfortable doing it. I did it for a living when I was a kid. And so it's sort of fun being back on the mind. You, um.
1: and, and some of what you were just saying speaks to, speaks to culture in a company, but you said, you said, and this really resonated with me, that culture is the operating system of a company. When you think about culture and the organizations you've run, kind of what's your true north, how does that work?
0: Well, look, I, I do think, like an operating system, if your culture's not right, no program works very well. If your operating system's broken, the, sure. I don't care what the program is, it doesn't work well. So I think it's real important to get that, those values. And, and by the way, when I do a performance review with someone, I should be able to do the whole performance review through the values you did this one well you didn't do this one well you're really extraordinary here you're nice right here's what you can do more of here but it's and never leave the values Mm -hmm. and if i can't do that we got the wrong values um and and now we get to sort of i've done small companies big companies why do big companies not innovate well and small companies do and i have my theories one of them is that let's say there are 10 levels between me and the lowest job in the company so if somebody has an idea to make it to me, they have to go through 10 people to say yes, right? and one person can say no, do the math. We've now stacked the odds 100 to one, no to yes. Mm-hmm. So how can you break that? And one of the things we've, we've talked about in our company, and we do it not as well as I'd like, but we're beginning to do it better, is when you, instead of throwing an idea through a chain, is that like, why do all these people have to approve it? Are they adding value? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I probably need somebody from engineering to say it's technically feasible, and somebody from legal to say, "Yeah, we could legally do that." And but that's not really an approval. That's just adding more input to it. So what we've tried to do instead of running it up the chain, we've tried to just throw it out to everybody that's going to be involved in making the decision. Hmm. Now any one person can save an idea because we're all hearing it. Now it's a little messier. It's more people involved. They got to look at more stuff but if you really want the company to be as nimble as a startup where one person has an idea they tell the person to make the decision and there's no you are just having a dialogue you find ideas are much better i also find a presentation of an idea is nothing like a dialogue about the idea sure and in small companies you tend to have dialogues and so what i really want to do is start a dialogue about this idea because Almost always, and I've had some really good ideas in my life, I have some really bad ones, but the really good ones weren't like I got a great idea and we executed. I had a really good idea and then we iterated it. Mm. We began talking about it and it got better, it moved, shifted. How about this? How about that? And when you move it through that process, it's amazing how much better the idea gets. So for us, we're trying to not make these levels a problem. We're trying to make, okay, now I got 10 people who can save an idea. Right. Any one person can sort of shake, you know what, let's go save that idea. What I know is that when you say we've all agreed upon the idea, that's a mediocre idea at best. Uh, because great ideas scare the shit out of people. Yeah. Uh, and there's usually one person that's just fighting and fighting and fighting to get that through. And you want an organization that can let that person fight. One of our corporate values is we listen to and welcome dissent. Uh, and I will often say, when somebody says, we've worked it through and here's the idea, I always I can't make a decision. I say, what did the dissenter say? Yeah. And uh, the first time I did it, they go, everybody agrees. And I go, well, you guys don't listen well. There's <laughs> always somebody doesn't agree. And most of the time you go, okay, yeah, I'm going with the consensus view. But once in a while you go, wow, that's really a good idea. That's a better viewpoint. And as the CEO, I have the right to say, as a company, we're going to go with that one. And this, But we could be completely wrong. And sometimes we are. But I'd rather take a chance on a breakthrough idea than go with what we can see to be safe, which I think aren't really safe, yeah. because your business just sort of dwindles. I, I'm a believer that most of the work we do has no value to the business, it just keeps the business going. That the only thing that adds value is epiphanies and insights. What pushes you? The from? one where you just wake up and go, God, I got it. I've got this idea. and everybody has those how do we harness them as a company so we have where the accumulation of them all as opposed to go that kid doesn't that, fit that, that, that. Yeah. Uh, and we've all you know in early, early in our career we've always been when we were the kid that got squished on every sure. innovative idea we wanted to do uh and i, I just want, don't want our company to be that
1: yeah. great well bob thank you very much appreciate thank you. it thank you for being here a
2: great fun This podcast was recorded on October 17, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, As to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, The receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.